Now, as we walk through this passage this morning, I must admit that we are merely going to be scratching the surface. Revelation is one of those books that's very deep with imagery. It can be difficult to understand. It can be intimidating to preach. And so I want to come forward in the beginning and just say there is plenty in this passage that we may not touch on today. And even if you have the time later to read and continue on in verse 21 to see this this description of this new heaven and new earth. But what I want us to get from this passage today is really to experience the joy that we see, the hope that is given as we look forward to this new heaven and the new earth. So three things I want us to focus on. First is the vision that we see here. Second is the voice. And third, the victorious. So three V's, the vision, voice, and victorious. So let's look first and consider the vision as we see it in verse 1. It begins by saying we saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's appropriate then as we, we think about this new year, there's this idea we may have in our minds of, of renewal and newness. Maybe you or others you know have, have made New Year's resolutions. There's some innate desire that many of us have for renewal, for improving ourselves, because we recognize there's something that's just not right within us. There's something in the world that is just not right. Whether you're a believer or not, I think there's that innate sense that we have as humans for wanting to see change, for wanting to see newness brought about. And so the problem is what we fail to acknowledge so often is that whether it's New Year's resolutions or these desires for self-improvement, we're still operating in this old world. We're still operating within the confines of this old body. We're limited in the sense that we can really bring about lasting change. Maybe we've sensed that already. Maybe you've had New Year's resolution, good ones perhaps, to get into the Word every day, and maybe you already failed at that. Maybe it's to exercise or to run or to eat right, and you've already been slipping. We see that that desire that we have for newness can't be brought about fully in our own effort in this world. And so when we look at this passage, as it says, a new heaven and a new earth, we must ask, why is there a need for a new one? Well, if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we see the story of creation in Genesis 1, where God creates this perfect world. He places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we all know the story that they are tempted by the serpent. They eat of the fruit that they are told not to. And at that point, sin and death into the world. And it's at that point that God could have abandoned his plan. He could have abandoned his new creation and said, guess what? This is, this is not worth it. But we see at the very beginning, God instead, he promises to deliver them. We see the first gospel message in Genesis 3, where God promises to send a rescuer, someone who will crush the head of that serpent. And so what we just celebrated at Christmas time, we see this fulfillment of this promise being carried out. Jesus came as a second Adam, not as a man made of dust, but a God-man who is sent from heaven. A man who would conquer death on the cross. A man who would rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven. And a man who promised, this God-man promising to return again. And so that's where we are in this passage today. As we reach Revelation 21, the second coming of Christ has already been described. If you were to go back to to chapters 18 through 20, you'd see the return of Christ. So what happens then after his return is what we're looking at today. He's judged the world. He's fully and finally conquered the evil one. 
And now it's this act of removing this old heaven and new earth and bringing forth a new one. And so we see this prophesied earlier in the Bible. This is what was read to us by Andy from Isaiah 65, where he prophesied, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered no more. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So we see this echoing of what has already been prophesied long ago in Isaiah coming to fruition here in Revelation. thing is, when Isaiah prophesied this years and years ago, he was actually pointing toward a fulfillment and from their captivity in Babylon. And while that was partially true, and it was fulfilled that the people of Israel were brought out of captivity in Babylon, it also points to the second advent. It points to this time where a new heaven and a new earth will be established. Where there'll be, so we see these themes of gladness and joy. There will be no more weeping and no more sadness. And interesting what it says here in, in chapter 21 of Revelation, there will be no more sea. Now maybe it's it, that's a curious phrase to you. Why in the world would there be no sea? Does that mean there's there's no beaches in heaven? No oceans for us to enjoy. That's not necessarily what the text is talking about here. This past term at the Clue uh, up in Edinburgh, we were actually walking through uh, the uh, the Old Testament book of Exodus where God delivers his people out of slavery. And so as we got to the point where God is, is delivering his people away from Pharaoh's army, they walk through the old sea that he has parted. We see here themes of this sea, and it's actually repeated frequently throughout the Bible. What what does this mean other than just this one story? It actually shows us, reveals much more about the Old Testament. This theme of, of the sea and water, it actually represents chaos in a lot of ways. If we, again, if we think of the creation story in Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now again, this doesn't mean that there were waters before creation. But it's showing us that before created order, there was disorder. So likewise, when we fast forward and think of the Noahic flood, these waters, the oceans that rose, brought chaos and death to mankind. And so too then, the crossing of the Red Sea. We see the people of Israel crossing from death unto life. We see this death and chaos close in on Pharaoh's army who is pursuing them. And so as we look at this passage then, again, it's not talking about the topography of this new heavens and new earth, whether the sea exists or not. We're looking at this, this order that Christ finally restores, that he will fully and finally destroy death, that sin and all its effects will be gone forever. And so it's important then as we, as we think of this to understand God's plan here because it may sound to you that God is finally doing some repair work from all that humans have screwed up over these thousands of years. But that's not the case. We see that Adam and Eve, even at the beginning of time, when they sinned, that was a part of God's plan. Just as his plan comes to fruition here with this new heavens and a new earth, we need to understand that God has been sovereign over all time, over all action, forever. 
And so we see that God has decreed the end from the very beginning. And all creation has then led to this point that we see in Revelation 21, where God brings about this new heaven and the new earth. And so this old world has passed away in verse 2. It says, I saw this holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so again, in Isaiah, he's talking about Jerusalem. We see that Jerusalem is mentioned here. So the question is, what is Jerusalem? Is this a place he's describing? What is, if you continue on in chapter 21, you see it described as a place with with walls and gates and jewels, but we're not talking about a city in the Middle East here. In fact, we're talking more about any geographic location. We're also talking about a people, God's people. So this people is a city. The city is a people, and that's why it can be described here as a bride. Again, language that we may be familiar with. The people of Israel were referred to as a bride in Jeremiah 2. John the Baptist refers to Jesus himself as the bridegroom in John 3. Paul, when he's talking about the relationship between a man and a woman in Ephesians 5, he relates it to the relationship that Christ has with the church. And so God's people, this is our identity as the bride of Christ, those who are saved by grace through faith. This is the eternal identity that we are given. And notice here the movement of this city. It's a city that says is brought down out of heaven. This is not man working their way up to God. If you consider any other religion in this world, how is man achieve salvation or achieve God's approval is through our own works. It's through earning God's favor. It's by doing enough good things. It's by earning merit that God may look down on us and be pleased. That's not what we see in this text. That's not the message of Christianity. The people of God are not the bride of Christ because of anything we have done. Only because of what Christ has done for us. It is his blood that cleanses us. It is Christ's righteousness that's imparted to us. That we may be presented with the purity of a virgin as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. And so this is our eternal identity, this intimacy that we have with the Father, with God forever. And so that leads us then to the voice that we hear in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, as we enter this new year, usually there's, there's often times where we reflect on the year past. Maybe it's good things that have happened, accomplishments that we've achieved. But also, there's, there's always touching on sorrows from your past. And I don't know you personally, I don't know this church well, but I, I, I dare say that within this church, within these families that are represented here, and maybe you individually have experienced suffering and sadness over this past year. Disease and death. Maybe loneliness or depression. Anxiety. Brokenness in your family, severed relationships, 
the list can go on and on. And, and so maybe we feel as though you're just barely limping into this new year. And then you realize this new year comes with the same problems and the same hardships of what we've just passed through. And so as we look at this text, though it's easy to focus on pain and hardship, this, this passage encourages us to, to fix our eyes elsewhere. This is the promise that is ours, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, that pain will be destroyed forever. And we have this wonderful imagery of God himself wiping away every tear. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I have four children of my own, ages 10 and under, and there is no shortage of tears in my house on a daily, if not hourly basis. And one of the greatest joys that I have as a father is when my child is hurt or sad to be able to take them up in their arms and to be able to comfort them and to wipe away their tears. The difference here is that when I try to comfort them, I have no promise that sadness won't return. Because I know that in days, if not hours, they will again be crying. But here we have the loving arms of a father who picks us up and holds us and wipes away our tears with the promise, you will never hurt again. And even better than what God does for us that we see in this text is simply his presence with us. Verse 3 again, it says, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the ultimate fulfillment of what God has promised his people over and over again in the scriptures, that I will be with you. Consider what we just celebrated at Christmas, what was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when we look at this word, dwell The only other place that this Greek word is used in the New Testament outside of Revelation is actually in the Gospel of John. Verse that you may be familiar with, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so why this dwelling that took place in, in Christ's first coming, we recognize that that was temporary because we know that he ascended into heaven. We have this promise that his dwelling will come again and will remain with us forever. When we look forward into this book of Revelation, we see that it ends in such a way that gives us hope and gives us joy of what that ultimate relationship looks like. There's an element of that dwelling that I I want to point out that's beyond just our our text today. If If we look forward in chapter 22, verse 4. We have this description of what this new heavens and new earth looks like with this, this river, this a river that runs through the city, the throne of God where his servants surround him and worship him. And in verse four it says, and they will see his face. This is what the dwelling of man with God looks like, that we may dwell on the face of our Lord. And notice how unique this is because this is something that, again, if we go back to the story of Moses in the book of Exodus, this is a request that he made of God when he goes up on Mount Sinai. He asks to see God's glory. And God responds, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. 
And so we recognize that sin and corruption keeps us from beholding the full glory of God. If we were to see God's glory in our current state, we would be consumed with his wrath. But we see in this new heaven and new earth, that's no longer the case because our relationship with God is no longer tarnished by sin. And so to see God's face, this should be the ultimate goal of every believer. We may think, what's the goal of being a believer? Maybe it's to have faith, or maybe it's to be sanctified or to be holy. No, the goal of believers should be to see the face of God, that we may move from faith to sight. This is what David's supreme prayer is in Psalm 27 that we're going to sing after this at the end of this service, where he says that we may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is the completion of our theology as believers. This is the ultimate revelation that we experience to be able to see the face of God. And what's so wonderful about this is is that we're looking at an infinite God who we will never get to see the full depth of. Who will able be able to continue to reveal more and more of his richness and his grace to us. That this vision will be ever increasing and ever progressing. Puritan John Edwards, he put it this way. He said, after we have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of years, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. And so as we have just celebrated the thought of of this Christ in a manger, as we think about the, the ministry and life and death of Christ on the cross, may we also focus on the vision of Christ in his ultimate glory that we will behold forever. If we move on in this passage, we not only hear the voice of, of another, we hear the voice of God himself who affirms this reality in verses 5 and 6. He says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, if, if you're a student or maybe you remember when you were a student, those times when you're listening to your professor or lecturer and they say, You need to listen up because this may be on the exam. If you've been daydreaming or not paying attention, you immediately, your ears perk up, you pick up your pen or you get your fingers ready at your laptop and you copy everything that he then says because you recognize the importance of what he's about to say. This is essentially what God is telling us here. He gives us a similar notice to write this down. These true words are true and reliable. I am making all things new. And so we see these words then that follow. He's repeating the words that we hear from Jesus on the cross who says, it is finished. Here we say the voice of God saying, it is done. Literally in the Greek, it's in the plural. They are done. All the events of world history, all the salvation of God's people, the judgment of his enemies, the consummation of his eternal kingdom, all these things have now been accomplished. And we know this is so because of his own identity as he reveals it to us. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
God, again, is stating that he is sovereign over all. He is in control from the very beginning of history to his very last days. And only the beginning and the end, but he's been in control of every second in between. There is nothing that has ever happened outside of God's sovereign hand. And so if we think back then of the hardships that you might have experienced this past year, maybe you're going through right now. The temptation may be to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's control over your life. I think the question would then be to ask is, where are you putting your trust in? What are you seeking as your satisfaction and your security? Is it in your job? Is it in your finances, your family, your friends? None of those are bad in and of themselves. But they cannot ultimately satisfy. They cannot ultimately bring us that lasting hope that is offered to us here. And so instead we see a different offer. The offer to turn to Christ who offers water without cost from the spring of water of life for all who are thirsty. Again, it's a theme that we see repeated throughout the scriptures. If we were to go back to Isaiah once more, to Isaiah 55, we hear the words, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has not money, come and buy and eat. Likewise, the words of Jesus himself in the Gospel of John chapter 4, where he meets this woman at the well, and he offers her living water, He says, whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the things of this world that we turn to for security and satisfaction, they will not quench that thirst. Because the fact is they cannot quench that thirst. God is confirming here that ultimate ultimate satisfaction can only be found in him. And so this leads us then to our third point. We've considered this vision and heard the voice of God himself. Now we can focus on the victorious. Look in verse 7 and 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so who are these conquerors? Who are the victorious that we see in this passage? Well, it may be best to first consider who are not the victorious. We have this list that's given, the cowardly and the faithless, followed by this list of various sins. And of course, this list is not meant to be comprehensive at all, but to illustrate that the depravity of unbelievers and to highlight that there is nothing unclean that will enter the kingdom of God. And so maybe as you look at this list and you hear about the these people that are detestable and faithless, sexually immoral, idolaters, liars, you may think, oh man, that describes the, a lot of coworkers I have. Some of my flatmates, maybe some of my family. And that's, that temptation is within all of us to point toward others when we identify sin. But let us identify ourselves in these words to recognize that we were once these people. If not for the grace of God, this is us. Again, we don't want to 
here fooling ourselves that we do anything to earn our salvation or God's favor. If anyone uh, last month was watching the World Cup, um, you may know if you, if you follow football that there's 11 players that play on the pitch on one, for one side at a time. The roster for any World Cup team this year was 26 players. If you think about how many substitutes there are in a normal game for per side, what is it, three to five perhaps? And so we're talking about probably ten players from each team who never saw any playing time. And so you think about the Argentinian team who won the World Cup. They probably had about ten players on their team that never saw a second of action in the World Cup. Do you know what they call themselves? Champions, victors, winners. Though they didn't contribute at all to that win. That's what we see here for us. We are victors because Christ is He has won the victory for us. He is the victor. It is only through his blood that we experience the forgiveness of sins. And so we see here what the ultimate gift is for those who are victorious then. He says that I will be their God and they will be my children. This again is a promise that he has made to his covenant people throughout the story that we see in the Bible. But something very interesting here about how it's phrased, it's phrased in the singular. I will be his God and he will be my son. I will be her God and she will be my daughter. Yes, we recognize that God is the, is sovereign and in control over the whole world, that he is the God of every nation and people group, but he is saying, I am your God. May this individualized message excite us. May it give us hope that we have a God who has chosen you. The reality of this passage is, is it's pointing to a time in the future, but it's relating to you and me as readers today. When the second coming of Christ happens, it's going to be too late to change your mind. For those who aren't believers, for those who aren't found in Christ, it'll be too late to confess your need for a Savior. And that's why it says their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And so the good news then for those who may not be in Christ, for those who are yet to believe, the invitation is to come. This is an invitation that remains for you today. It's an invitation with which the whole Bible concludes. Again, if we look forward to Revelation 22, in verse 17 it says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The world thirsts for newness. That's why we make these resolutions, that's why we have this desire for self-improvement. But again, the things of this world, our own efforts, will never quench this thirst. And so the invitation to you today is to come to Christ, to drink from the river of life. And by doing so, not only do we experience new creation, we become a new creation. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so this work of renewal that we see in this passage that God promises to do in the world, he promises also to do in us. 
so invitation is to come and to enter into God's eternal kingdom, to believe in the work of Christ who saves. But this passage is not only an invitation to non-believers, it is also encouragement for us, the body of Christ, those who are also already found in Christ. And so may it be a challenge to us in this new year that we may be reminded of where our focus should be. That we may long to see the second coming of Christ. That we may meditate on the joy of seeing this new heaven and new earth. And that doesn't mean we're kind of become these people with our heads in the cloud and kind of detached from reality. That's not how it should motivate us. Peter talks about this in in 2 Peter. He he's refers to the second coming of Christ and how we as believers should respond. What, how should, we should act and how we should live. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, he says this. He tells us to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and the speed it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and elements will melt away in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and to a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so the story of God and his redemption, though it is still ongoing, we know how it ends. And so that may that be joy to us. May that be motivation to recognize that this age of sin and death and hurt and sadness will be replaced with an age to come of life and peace forever. May we not lose sight of that. May we long to see the day of the Lord. May it be our prayer, thy kingdom come. Let's pray together. God, we pray thy kingdom come. We recognize, Lord, that your kingdom was inaugurated at the coming of Christ, and we look forward to the day when it may be consummated at his return. May we look forward to beholding the face of God that this life of faith may be moved to ultimate sight. We thank you, Lord, that in our sin and our depravity and our rebellion, you have chosen us and you have continued to complete your good work in us. Lord, we pray for those who may be here today that don't know you. May they receive this invitation to come, to come through the blood of Christ, to receive an inheritance that is eternal. Lord, we thank you that we can call you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. May that be our motivation and our joy in this new year. We pray this in Jesus' name.